Star Wars Action News is brought to you in part by Brian's Toys. At Brian'sToys.com, you can find Star Wars toys and collectibles from 1977 to the present. Brian's Toys has it all, from vintage toys and action figures right up to the latest releases. And when checking out, be sure to say you were referred to Brian's Toys by Star Wars Action News. So go check out the world's largest selection of Star Wars toys at Brian'sToys.com. listening to Star Wars Action News, your source for Star Wars collecting news, reviews, and updates, helping Star Wars collectors collect better. Be sure to check out our website at SWActionNews.com, where you can see photos of the items discussed, chat with other Star Wars Action News listeners, and much more, including information on how you can be part of the show. Welcome to another episode of Star Wars Action News. I'm Marjorie. I'm Arnie. We have a big, big show for you this week. I have an interview coming up with Star Wars author Tim Levin, whose first Star Wars novel, Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void, comes out tomorrow. Quite possibly the longest title. Well, it's two titles. Yeah. Dawn of the Jedi is the comic series it's tying into. Into the Void is the title of the actual novel. We've also got a contest coming up where you can win... Some artwork by Mike Kungle, a con report from the UK. But first, this past weekend, it was almost like the perfect storm. It was. We had May the 4th, which is the ha 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 play on words holiday. Yeah, a ha ha holiday. A ha 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 holiday, as well as free comic book day. And there was a Star Wars comic from Dark Horse on free comic book day. And, and perhaps the most bizarre twist, it was also World Naked Star Wars Gardening Day. I don't get that. Is gardening naked a big thing? I don't know. I'm more curious. Is World Naked Star Wars Gardening Day one of those holidays that's on May the 4th every year? Or is it on the first Saturday of May every year? Or is it like Easter, where it's after a certain full moon of the year? Am I supposed to wear like a Darth Vader cosplay helmet while I'm gardening naked? I don't know how I'm supposed to tie Star Wars into this. It's very confusing. Yeah. Also, yuck. Exactly, yeah. But we did head down to St. Louis for Free Comic Book Day because they actually raised the prices of free comics. The comic book shops have to pay for these comics, which they do get them at a reduced rate. But the idea is it's going to introduce people to comics and bring traffic to your store. Our local comic book store decided to really reduce the number of comics they were going to get. And they told us ahead of time because we go there a lot. So we headed down to Star Clipper in St. Louis, which is a great, great comic store and slash pop culture store. We went there last year for Free Comic Day after our local store we went to, and they just didn't get most of the free comics, so we decided to road trip it down. And it was a madhouse when we got there. A stinky, stinky madhouse. It was. It was a little consent-rific. It was ripe. Yeah, it was. 
obviously the Saturday baths were happening after Free Comic Book Day. So this year we decided to head down way early and get there as they opened. And there was a major line. Yeah, there was a probably a line about two storefronts long in front of Star Clipper, but they moved it through super fast. They had velvet rope set up so that you could go back and peruse the tables with the comic books. They had about three tables worth of comic books, and they had a pretty good system where you go around the table and pick your comic books, limit of 10, so no one got greedy. You could leave for other people. And then they checked, make sure you had your comics, put them in a nice little free comic book bag for you, give you a sticker It says... You went to free comic book day. It's the I voted for geeks. It was, yeah. But what makes Star Clipper so much fun is they have bands that come in and they play video game music and geek music. And they had a stand-up comedian in the afternoon and they had artists. Now, their first Saturday, they always have artists that will come out there and do sketches. A lot of times they work on tips. Sometimes they have a very nominal fee for their sketch. Today, it was whatever you wanted to donate. You could take it for free or you could give them some money, whatever you felt was appropriate. They do this the first Saturday of every month. And when the weather's nice, they have the artists outside. Because it was rainy and crappy and cold, they had them inside this time. But because it was rainy, crappy, and cold, there was no stench. That's true. Now, we went over there, and last time I looked at the artists, I'm getting into these sketches a little bit. And the line was so long to get the artists, and I wasn't familiar with any of them. Because, again, we got there around 2 o'clock in the afternoon last year. This year, getting there right at 10, the artists were just kind of sitting there twiddling their thumbs, sketching for fun. And I saw one of them had a Darth Vader sketch out. And so I'm like, all right, this is a guy who likes Star Wars. So I asked him to do a Greedo. And he spent a lot of time on that Greedo, probably 15, 20 minutes or so, and really put a lot of shading into it. And then he handed it to me when he was done. He said, not only is Greedo a jerk, he's also a liar, because he put a little caption, a word bubble next to it that says, I always shoot first. And since everyone knows he never shot at all, it makes him a liar as well as a criminal. It was a great sketch. It really was. It was by Benjamin Sawyer, who is a St. Louis local artist. And he has a webcomic at blastercomic.com that he's doing. It's free. You can head to blastercomic.com. I told him I'd give him a shout out on the show because I think he did a great job with the Greedo. It was pay whatever you want. I gave him 30 bucks for the Greedo because he did a lot of work to it. And I felt like that was fairly fair. That seems to be a going con rate for self-published, minorly published authors at cons. So he did a great job. Thank you so much. I also bought some comics while I was there to support the store. The whole point of Free Comic Day is actually to generate traffic and generate revenue for the comic stores. I always want to support local comic stores when I can because, like bookstores, they're a dying breed. They are a dying breed as more comics are digital only, web comics, which are a great thing too. It's a great way to get the word out. It's the equivalent of a zine back in the day for those of you who are old like me. But it, please visit your local comic shop because they've got some great stuff. Ours always has vintage toys. Star Clipper has new stuff. They get a lot of stuff that Entertainment Earth gets. They have fun little tchotchkes and they always have events going on. Of course, being May the 4th, there were a lot of deals going on, including digital comics. I have to say I like comic stores. I like the atmosphere. I like the culture. And I like collecting my Star Wars comics in paper. I like having them bagged and boarded with all the ads and the original printing. When it comes to reading, I actually prefer digital comics. I actually like reading them on my iPad and my Asus Transformer so much better than actual paper. So I love that Dark Horse has been giving digital copies of their comics when you buy the paper copies now. And they had a huge deal. Again, they seem to do this every May the 4th for deep, deep discounted bundles of Star Wars comics. They had a mega bundle of comics. 
which was $400 worth of comics, over 3,000 pages of comics for 100 bucks even. That's a good price. I mean, we're talking a lot of great comics. We're talking Agent of the Empire. We're talking Darth Maul Death Sentence. We're talking the Legacy series, the Old Republic comics, and a preview of the upcoming The Star Wars comic where they're adapting George Lucas's first draft of the series. So, very cool there. They also had a kids bundle, which was 100 bucks worth of comics for $30. And this has a lot of their little adventure stuff, the Clone Wars adventures, the adventures of Princess Leia. Just great prices for digital comics. Tons of bargains. I hope you followed us on Facebook and on Twitter because we kept posting. Kindle and iTunes books had Star Wars books for $2. That included Darth Plagueis and so many other Star Wars novels for just 2 bucks in digital format. Absolutely great. I did go to Lego to get that exclusive brown coat Hoth Han minifigure and their free Star Wars poster. I picked up the Jabba's Palace semi-controversial Lego set. Yeah, people need to read and research before they post on Facebook or Twitter is basically what it amounts to. Well, yeah, I mean, it wasn't just Facebook. It was news sites yeah. posting about this. But the price of this on Amazon had skyrocketed. Availability had plummeted. It was actually on sale at Lego's site down to $100. And free shipping, free poster, free minifig, and previously hard to find. So I snatched that up. I did pass on the Mimobot R2A6 they were doing, the green one. I got their Jar Jar for April Fool's Day because you love Jar Jar. I do, yes. You have to have everything Jar Jar. I do, uh-huh. But a green astromech with a 1,000-piece edition size, I just decided I could live without it. Hmm. Trying to not stock up too much on thumb drives. They make such cute ones that I'm trying to limit to the ones that are really cute versus an R2-D2 repaint. If they started making multi-terabyte hard drives... That you could take with you, because that's how you mostly take your data around with you now. That would be phenomenal, and you could just do that. Website Zulily has a sale that if you go today, the day this show is released, it's the last day for their sale. Tons of deep discounts on Star Wars merchandise. Books, most of which I already had, so I ended up not getting them, but some really cheaply priced books, plushies, aprons, just all kinds of Star Wars merchandise. We'll have a link to that from our homepage, but that does end Monday night at 11.59 p.m. And it's one of those secret sale websites where you have to sign up and then you get emails about what's on sale. And a couple of times a year, they have some Star Wars stuff on clearance. Mostly it's Lego and books. It's not so much action figures, They but they seem to have Lego items quite regularly. And after Free Comic Day, we spent Saturday hitting a whole bunch of Toys R Us's because the Endor AT-AT, it had been spotted on the coast a couple weeks ago. On Friday of last week, it was found in Illinois and Michigan. And so I had a $25 off coupon that was expiring Saturday. I desperately wanted to find this AT-AT on Saturday. We tried our local Toys R Us. We tried a whole bunch of St. Louis Toys R Us's. It was not to be. No, it was not. It was found in Chicago by Jonathan. I'm sure he'll talk about it on his next segment. And Chris, Jedi Yoda 7, who joined us at our C2E2 coverage, found it as well. But I didn't find it. I think I'm going to hold off, though. Toys R Us has been doing so many coupons because they're overpriced. Mm-hmm. That's their motto. That's how some things work. It's, hey, it's always on sale, but we're super high priced. It's like the shoe carnival. So I think that I'll just wait and follow their Facebook page and I get all their emails. I'm subscribed to all of their junk mail lists. So wait and see if I can find a coupon for it because it's only 125 which is far less than I was guessing given the price of the Millennium Falcon. 
It's funny. I went to a lot of Toys R Us's. They had that Millennium Falcon sitting there for 250 but no AT-ATs. Mm-hmm. But at 125 I think that I might have a couple of weeks where I can pick this up. It's not going to be a blink and I miss it kind of item. Well, especially with no big toy holiday coming up anytime soon. When you have a big toy holiday like Christmas or Easter, that's when you have to worry about things like that. Because people like to get their kids like one big gift and then some little things. But I think you're going to be fine this summer. Just collectors and kids' birthdays I have to worry about. Yes. Well, that's all the Star Wars finds and sales we have to talk about. It's kind of a... Dry time, I guess we could say. But while we were over at C2E2, Steve, our UK reporter, went to the Wales Comic Con. Greetings, all. This is Steve the Ginger Prince coming to you all the way from the UK. It was great hearing about Marjorie and Arnie's exploits at C2E2, and whilst they were in Chicago, I was in Wrexham at our first con of the season, Wales Comic Con. It's a familiar journey down to Glendower University for the lovely Suzanne and I, as this was probably the fourth or fifth time that we've attended this growing convention. Last year, there were queues wrapped around the convention hall, and I would have been worried about queuing again had I not snapped up a couple of early bird tickets around the turn of the year. It turned out to be a very wise move, as again, there were massive lines that built up during the day, causing some of my Twitter followers to be disappointed, as they weren't prepared to face the wait to get in. We had to queue in the early bird line for about half an hour before the official opening time, but we were given wristbands confirming our early bird status, and then entertained by various members of the Empire's Finest and other crazy cosplayers such as apes that would scare Charlton Heston and ginger-haired archers. As soon as the con doors opened, we were in the warmth within five minutes, and as previously, it was a mixture of vendors plying their wares and guests from the world of film, television and sport. The organisers had invited a number of Star Wars guests, but most of them were old friends like Paul Blake, Warwick Davis, Nick Gillard and Richard Bonehill, so I was only looking to get one signature to add to my collection, that of the man in the Plo Koon mask, Alan Rusko. Alan was a lovely fellow, and told us he loves attending cons as it makes himself feel so much more special than he does in everyday life. He also regaled us with a particularly cringeworthy story about how he ruined an autograph collector's pride and joy after spilling silver ink from a leaky pen all over a Phantom Menace poster with around 200 signatures on at a con that he was attending in Japan. I'm so glad I collect my John Hancocks on 10x8s. I don't think I could stand the stress of lugging around one object full of signatures, constantly fretting about it getting damaged. Anyway, Mr. Rusko did a lovely job signing my pick of Master Plo, and it will make a fine addition to the autograph hall. There were a number of interesting sights and sounds around the con floor as we made our way around, including a number of photo opportunities with cosplayers, such as assembling Avengers and Star Trek captains. We didn't let fun get in the way of our core purpose of toy hunting, though. Our first stop was at a vendor we know well, Three Darth's Collectibles, and the first question I had for them was, have you got any of the Yoda green card wave? You'll be lucky, was his reply, and I wasn't. The figure I was looking for was the Mecha Darth Mole, as that's the last bit of the prize that I need to send to competition winner, XR Kun. But the only two he could find for me were the Savage Oppress and a Sexy Rexy. Nick from Three Darths told me that Sainsbury's supermarket might be worth a try, as he'd heard that they were getting some of the green Yoda cards in. He also told me that he'd heard that they were starting to show up in the States. I wonder if any Swanlings have found any. 
It was during this conversation that I spied something on the stall that I hadn't seen in person before and very much wanted. For £30 I was able to pick up the Ewok True Exclusive 5 pack from the Movie Heroes line. This is a great pack and contains three in-film characters that I must have to add to my mighty 3 and 3 quarter inch figure display cabinets. First off we've got Flitchy. Now if you know your Ewoks and let's be honest which Star Wars fan worth assault doesn't, you'll know that this is the Ewok who waves a Stormtrooper blaster in celebration after the ATST gets destroyed by Chewie and his two furry little helpers. This is a cracking little figure with a choice of hoods, a knife in a sheath and a satchel. Even more memorable than Flitchy is Nanta, or as most fans know him, Corpsey the Ewok. Yes, this is the little fella who buys the farm during the battle on the forest floor. Nanta has been somewhat shortchanged on the accessory front, only being given a spear. The last in-film Ewok in the pack is Royalty. Contrary to the opinion of some, Princess Nisa has been confirmed as being in Return of the Jedi, and not just the Ewok cartoon series. She makes a great little action figure, and Hasbro haven't scrimped here. She's got a catapult around her neck and a choice of girly pink hood if you prefer her to have a cartoon look or a bland pale green hood if you want a movie accurate look. I've gone with the green hood. The fourth Ewok in the pack is an updated T-Bone. He too has two hoods. They're both a hollowed out pig head but one has a long frill at the bottom whilst the other just ends in a bone necklace. He also comes with a number of accessories like an axe but I've chosen to display him with drumsticks aloft ready to partay. Last but not least is an Ewok that to my knowledge has only appeared in the Marvel comics. Tippet looks well faced with a small sword and an animal skull headpiece. But he won't scare his way into my display cabinet. That's one Ewok that Suzanne can add to her Ewok collection. Ewoks weren't the only thing that we bought at the 3 Darth stall. We also picked up a Stormtrooper helmet shaped baking tin to go with the Darth Vader helmet shaped tin that we picked up last year. I look forward to baking a lovely vanilla sponge cake in the shape of a Stormy's bucket as soon as I get a free afternoon. Our other purchases of the afternoon were all made at a large stall staffed by two primary school aged children, whilst what can only presume was their dad lounged around watching. This guy had tubs of vintage Star Wars stuff, and Suzanne enjoyed herself having a good route around. She came up trumps. I've been picking up more and more at-bar items lately, as my shrine to the Admiral grows and grows. So I was chuffed when Suzanne found a vintage 1982 Akbar in delightfully ropey condition, with a scuffed vest and chip uniform paint. To that I also added a 12 inch Akbar, something I already unboxed but don't have loose. I don't care if it's basically a doll, I can't get enough of the Admiral, and I'll have fun posing him for display while shouting, IT'S A TRAP! The last thing I bought was some hot toys. No, not the expensive Marvel stuff that Arnie talks about so often on the Marvelicious Toys podcast, but some items that were missing from my collection. In 1997, Hot Toys brought out a series of Matrushka-style Star Wars dolls. You know, the dolls that you open and there's always a smaller one inside. Back then, I picked up the Luke Skywalker set, the Anakin Skywalker set, the Rebel Pilot set, the Jango Fett set, and the Stormtrooper set. But there were a couple of sets that I never found. Well, this same dealer had the General Grievous set and the C-3PO set available for a tenner, so I pulled the trigger. These are great quality little items and look fantastic all displayed together. The large Grievous doll is the General in full swing, wielding four great little lightsabers and wearing his cloak. The smaller chubbies are not as good, showing Grievous as a Kalish warlord, one covered in bandages and one all organic looking. The 3PO set is also pretty nifty with everyone's favourite protocol droid in three forms. Fully clothed, partly finished, and all bare showing his wiring. 
The one thing that's different from our previous sets is that those dolls all had magnets in the base and the little feet so that they stood on their own, but for some reason these don't have any magnets in at all. Well it was a good day and a pleasing haul. It's always a good feeling to get the first con of the year under our belt. Another 4 or 5 are planned over the next couple of months as we build towards Celebration Europe 2 in Germany, where we'll get another chance to meet up with the two people that I'm just about to hand you back to, Arnie and Marjorie. Thank you, Steve. Speaking of conventions, we did have one bit of news come out this past week, and that is, it is confirmed what Hasbro pretty much told us at Toy Fair, but it is now 100% confirmed. The San Diego Comic-Con Star Wars exclusive is going to be the 6-inch Black Series Boba Fett with Han and Carbonite. That's going to be a sought-after piece. Really is. Now, they've said that at least the Boba Fett will be available again later on. This is the two-pack that makes it exclusive. We're not quite sure of all of the details about the exclusivity. I can't imagine they won't at some point make Han and Carbonite available again, too, if he's gotten to in the lines of success. Here's the kicker. $45 for two figures. They're six inches tall. I think that's about right. I mean, when you look at the price of an exclusive, they always mm-hmm. jack the exclusives up. I remember on April Fool's Day, I played a joke by posting on the Star Wars Action News page some six-inch figures in a Walmart store. And what a lot of people said, not knowing it was a joke, was, I'm not buying these because the tag I put them on was priced $19.99. And they're going, $20 is too much for a six-inch figure. I think that's going to be around the price. I thought you knew what price they were going to be. I thought I had missed it somewhere because that seems reasonable because you've got the fancy box, which is not cheap. The packaging is part of the product price. When you just slap an action figure on a card with a bubble, it's not that expensive, but you've got this nice embossed box. Yeah, I I thought these would be $20. So $45 for this two-pack, completely reasonable. I definitely think these six-inch figures, based on the Marvel Legends figures, which are, depending where you shop, between $16 and $24 a figure. I'm not kidding. $24 at Toys R Us. And two packs of the Marvel Legends sold as high as $60 a couple years ago at Toys R Us. So I think the $15 to $20 range is what these figures are going to be, depending where you shop. And yeah, 45 for two, the little bit of the exclusive surcharge they always seem to tack on. Hey, it's not that carbon freezing chamber with Jar Jar that was ridiculously expensive or that Death Star figure set, which was expensive and hard to get home. I'm okay with this. This is a cheap, easy to carry exclusive. I'm good. Yeah. It can go in my suitcase even. (laughs) My carry on bag. I don't care. I'm not going to complain about this one. But let us know what you think. Come to our forums and tell us if you're going to be trying to hunt down this exclusive. I've already seen people posting on Facebook and everything. Anyone able to help us out by getting one? Of course, there's always a limit on them. I'm curious what the limit will be. I bet it's a limit, too. I bet it is as well. Never above three the limit at the Hasbro Toy Shop booth. Three seems to be the max that you can buy. Mm -hmm. And depending on the exclusive, they will often stamp your badge so you can't come back. On that same day. Of course, even if you go back on a different day, then you're spending hours in line to get oh, more. Oh, you can easily spend hours in line there. 
It's our entire preview night almost every year. Mm -hmm. And then we're lucky if we walk away with toys and don't have to just do it again the next day. Yeah. Now, next up, again, Star Wars Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void is a new Star Wars novel. It comes out tomorrow, tying into the Dark Horse comic series of the same name. It is the earliest novel ever in the Star Wars universe, about 25,000 years before A New Hope. Wow. And it's being written by first-time Star Wars author. He's published a lot of other works. but Well, that's comforting. <laughs> first-time Star Wars author, Tim Levin. And I had a great opportunity to talk to him. The first part of our conversation is completely spoiler-free. It just has some basic information about the book. And we warn you in the interview when we get to the spoilers for those who want to stay spoiler-free until you read the book. And joining us now is Tim Levin, author of the new Star Wars novel, Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void. Thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. So tell us, how did you become an official Star Wars author? Right. Well, um, I'd, I'd worked with the editor at Lucas Books um, a few years ago. I wrote When she worked at a different publisher, I wrote a Hellboy novel for her, um, an original Hellboy novel. And then... I guess, you know, as well as doing a lot of my own stuff, I've written something like 25 or 30 novels of my own. I've done a fair bit of tie-in stuff over the last few years. Um, and the request just came through my agent. And it was, uh, he phoned me one day and said, Tim, do you fancy doing Star Wars? And as I've said in other interviews, it took me about half a second to say, yep, I'll do it. <laughs> so that was good. That's how it happened. So you were a Star Wars fan before writing the book? Yeah, I mean, I'm, um, I was a fan... I was, I'm old enough to have seen the original film in the cinemas when I was about eight years old. And I, I was a fan, big fan of that and Empire and Return of the Jedi. Um, and the, you know, the three prequels I quite enjoyed as well. Um, in a different way, I think I, I enjoyed those because I was introducing my kids to Star Wars through those at the same time. So that was, so yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I'm, I, I can't, I can't admit to having read all the expanded universe stuff. Um, but obviously, when I when I was brought on to do this, I, I read all the I read the comics that John Ostrander and Jan Durasima have done for um, for the Dawn of the Jedi. So yeah, I'm a, I'm I'm a fan definitely. Okay, and had you read any of the other expanded universe, or did you focus mainly on the comics? Um, the focus was largely on the comics, and uh, I was also I mean we worked really closely together. I worked closely with John and Jan, and also Dark Horse, who published the comics. My editor at Delray, Frank Parisi, we all worked very closely to make sure that the story I came up with um, complemented the comics, but also, um, you know, didn't contradict anything they were going to do in, in the future. So um, so it, that was quite intensive. But also I was uh, before I was brought on to do this, I wasn't aware that that was there was actually a Wikipedia, which I found delightful. So I used that an awful lot as well. That was constantly open on my desktop as I was writing the novel. I found that really useful. Coming into it the way you did, was it a little daunting to realize you were going to write a book that was 25,000 years before the movies? It was, yeah. It, um, when when they first asked me, if, uh, asked me if I wanted to do a Star Wars, I said yes, without even knowing what the novel was they wanted. Um, when more information came through, and I realized that it was, it was the dawn of the Jedi, and that my novel, I think, I'm pretty sure my novel is the earliest in the whole timeline of Star Wars novels that have been published. Um, there was a, it was a little daunting, but it was there was also a realization there that because it wasn't slap bang in the middle of all the other expanded universe stuff that had been done, it wouldn't necessarily mean that I'd have to read all the other novels to make <laughs> sure you know I, I knew what was going on and knew what certain characters were doing and what certain star systems uh, what what had happened there. So it's all it's all 
virgin territory, really, uh, to a large extent. I mean, there there is still an awful lot of stuff that, that's been discussed in the expanded universe about these earlier timelines. And now John and Jan are exploring them much more deeply in the comics. And so I was able to do that in my novel and, and go off and do my own. It's very much my own story with my own characters. There is obviously large crossover. It's it's set in the same star system because that's that's the only star system that, that um, stuff's going on in at the moment in that timeline. So that was really interesting. Yeah, so it's it's set in the same star system, but the, the story is very much my own. There are crossover characters which readers of the comics will enjoy meeting in the novel, but also... Um, I'm sort of hoping that some of the characters I create in the novel may pop up in the comics at some point. Just to clarify, when you were asked to write a Star Wars novel, did they say specifically they wanted you to write a Dawn of the Jedi novel, or was there a discussion about what kind of Star Wars novel you'd like to write? Yeah, they did. They they First of all, they asked me if, if I wanted to work on a Star Wars novel, and as I said, yep, straight away. And then they said, we're, we're looking for something based in the Dawn of the Jedi era. Um, I think they came to me. I've written lots of I've written lots of horror novels and lots of dark fantasy novels. I've never really touched um, science fiction as such, but I've always sort of viewed Star Wars as fantasy anyway. Really, it's it's a fantasy story in space. So they came to me because they wanted someone who'd written dark fantasy and who could. Um, and also, obviously, back in this era, there's there's no lightsabers. They um, the Jedi use or Jedi use force swords. So there's some sword action going on there as well. Um, and they, they wanted someone who 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 uh, could translate the sort of stuff they'd written before into into the Star Wars universe. I think so. Yeah, it was it was a specific request to write a novel based in this time era, but the story was left largely up to me with 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 tweaks here and there. You say darker. Do you feel that this is a darker era for Star Wars as far as tone and mood than what was seen in the movies? Um, I I'm not sure. I've been I've been told by other people that they were a bit bit surprised about how grim and grisly some of the book is. Um, my stuff tends to be fairly dark anyway, and I'm not quite sure why. It's When people ask me why I write <laughs> dark stuff, I, I use a saying of my grandmother, which is, is, is the way my mum put my hat on, and it's just the way I am. And it's why I'm bright and cheery in real life, I think, because I get it all out on the page. So <laughs> I think it is. Um, it might surprise people. There is, there is a fair bit of darkness there. There's lots of... Um, grim shady stuff going on but then you know in the movies the movies are pretty grim as well in places you, you just think of um you know vader when he when he kills the uh the sound people well he's not vader then but uh when he wipes out the sound people that's a pretty grim scene so you know there's there's lots of darkness that goes on anyway i was also conscious writing this novel there's not much humor in my books i must say but there's a lot of humor in star wars um so I, I did try and introduce a bit of humor between in you know the sort of bantering between my main character Lenori Brock and uh, Trey Sana, the the Twi'lek companion she has partway through the book, and uh, I I hope that worked okay. Yeah, I also liked some of the sardonic wit you had between Lenore and Dal when they were kids, talking about you know climbing all the stairs and everything. Oh, of course yeah, our yeah. room's on top. But... Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Now you say that you have a couple of crossover characters from the comics but this is largely original characters was that something the publisher asked to do or something that you felt you'd have more freedom with this is something i wanted to do i mean my 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 first thought was that it would be great to create my own characters um and i and the publisher was very welcoming of that i i think it would have been it would have been really difficult for me to write a novel featuring some of the main characters from the comics because john and jan know what they're doing with those characters they know where they're going they know what the stories are um, for me to take on one of those main characters would have been, um, 
I suppose in a way it would have been a bit more challenging, but but also not as not as liberating for me as to actually come up with my own Jedi Ranger character, Lenori, uh, who I think's great, and I really I really like her, and I like the fact that she's you know she's got her contradictions and a um, bit of internal turmoil going on there, and a uh, sort of build up you know as well as I did a lot of world building, I love world building in my fantasy novels, and and in this novel I I got to visit places that haven't been seen in the comics and weren't known about. So as well as all the world building, I, I got to character build as well. You know, I, I started from the ground up and that's that's always a good feeling. And when you're talking about the world building, like you said, you came into this era that John and Jan had been working in. How much communication did you have with them and what were the types of conversations about the additions you were making to their system or their fictional universe? Well, um, in... There's a issue of the comics, issue zero of the comic actually sort of sets up the background of the star system. It talks about the various planets and the moons and some of the societies there. But I wanted to, I think my, I think Lenori visits um, three planets during the course of the novel. And I wanted to take certain locations on those planets and, and sort of really expand them. And so the, the, the discussions with John and Jan really were about, first of all, whether they had any plans for those places in the future. Um, and if they did, just to make sure that what I did didn't contradict anything they were going to do. I couldn't, you know, for instance, destroy a city that they were going to use in, in a future comic. <laughs> um, so it was, it was all that sort of conversation, really. And also, we were, we were all... I, I really like cross-referencing. I've, I mean, writing-wise, I'm a fan of Stephen King, and I love, the, I love when he ties in one story to another and you get to meet characters that you've met in a novel 30 years ago, for instance. So John and Jan and I were, were pretty keen to, um, uh, for me to introduce or to meet characters from the comics. And also John's written a short story featuring uh, uh, Lenori. So I sort of hope that there's going to be, you know, that that's going to continue down the line. And maybe um, in later comics, some of their characters will visit places that I've, that uh, feature in the novel and which I've sort of started to build up a bit, a bigger picture of. Along those same lines, in addition to the characters and the planets, one of the things that always fascinates me when I'm reading these Star Wars books, you know, you like you said, yours is the earliest novel published before that. We had some set in the Old Republic era, which is 20,000 years after yours, and yeah. looking at the technological advancements. And in your book, you do have droids and blasters and spaceships, albeit all simpler versions and more primitive versions than what we've seen in other fiction in the movies, but mm. still far more advanced than what we have here on Earth. Did you find it difficult to kind of limit the technology there, but still give it that Star Wars feel? Um, I'm not sure I was... I mean, as I said, there were no lightsabers. They used four swords. I'm not sure I was hugely conscious of trying to limit the technology as such, but I was. Um, I suppose there's a self-imposed limit on the technology there because there's no faster than light travel back in this era. So there, um, all the force sensitives are in the whole story set in the Titan system. It's very similar in sort of scope and 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 design, I suppose, to our own solar system. There's you know seven or eight planets. They've all got moons. There's one star one sun so um so it was quite interesting talking about uh journeys between planets taking many days instead of you know in in one of the star wars movies he, luke will jump into his, his x-wing and he'll he'll be at his destination 10 minutes later or whatever so um so that was a sort of a 
I suppose at the back of my mind, that was always there. It was, it was, it was more similar to, um, you know, it was like a self-imposed limit as to what technology could do back then. But there's still, like you say, there's still spaceships and, and there's still lots and lots of space travel goes on. And the weaponry, um, it was good fun making up a bit, a bit of new weaponry here and there as well. And you've got to have droids in Star Wars, however, <laughs> however basic they may seem. <laughs> you can't go without droids. And looking at the book itself, I had a few questions about the characters and the plot, but so I pronounce it right. How do you say Jedi in this? It's with a apostrophe and A-I-I at the end. How do you pronounce that? Uh, I'm not really sure. I, I've heard it pronounced Jedi. Okay, Jedi. Uh, that's it. Yeah, Jedi, I think. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of what I heard in my head, but I wasn't sure if that was yeah, correct. Yeah. I mean, that's from the, um, uh, something from the comics. Well, looking at your book here, there's a mm -hmm. distinct philosophy the Jedi have on the Force that kind of differs from what we've seen in previous fiction. Instead of looking at light side and dark side, there's the healthy balance in the Force. They're not all light, nor are they all dark. They're striving for balance. Yeah. I was wondering what your philosophy was of the Force in regards to that. I found that really interesting, actually, and it, it, it attracted me to the, to the, um, the era even more. Um, I like, you know, in the Star Wars we're used to, the movies, there's, you're either light side or you're dark side. You're a goodie or a baddie. But I, I mean, I think it's more realistic in, in a way, having, having these characters striving for balance as opposed to striving just to be light or just, or, you know, deciding just to be dark. It, it makes the characters more interesting. You know, all characters have shades of grey. There's no, nobody's pure good or pure evil. Nobody in real life. And, and, to have characters tackling that in fiction is much more interesting. It also made, for me, made, uh, I think, as I said earlier, made Lenoria a really interesting character. She's got all good at heart, but there's always, you know, she has contradictions and there's possible things going on in her head that may hint at the darker side, you know? So, I, and I, I think that's much more interesting. And there's also actually a third point of view here going on, which is Dal's and saying that the Jedi are slaves to the Force and can't think for themselves. And the more typical take is kind of that the Force users are the enlightened ones, but here Dal feels he's the enlightened. Could you take a moment and kind of expand on that point of view for us? Yeah, well, I, I think he, like you say, he feels that his his sister Lenori is a, a slave to the Force, and he, I, I suppose, um, I suppose in the Star Wars uh, universe, he's he's the atheist. He's the he's the person that believes he's the. Um, he steers his own destiny and he's master of his own fate and he doesn't like the idea and he really and he he consciously rebels against the idea that the, the force is there for him as well and that's I think that's what um, without getting too deep into the plot and I think that's what messes him up a little bit um, the whole whole idea that not only is he not as force sensitive as his sister and parents but he's actively rebelling against it and I and that's a fascinating idea as well I think you know the Lots of them, all the, the Jedi Masters, they merrily go along and, and listen to the Force and do what it tells them and, and work with it. But the, there are people for whom it doesn't work. Um, and it's interesting to see how they, how they deal with that. And I think, I suppose, at his heart, Dal probably feels, I mean, there's probably a deep insecurity in him as well. He feels like a bit of a failure because he's, he's the one of the family that, that isn't going to end up being a Jedi Master. Um, but that, uh, you know, and he, he doesn't handle that very well, as, you've, as, you probably, <laughs> as you probably know. And during this book, we have kind of two parallel stories going on. You've got the story where Lenore is 
going on her mission that's assigned by the Jedi Masters, but you also tell of Lenore and Dal's childhood in these flashback segments. And I was reminded of kind of the TV series Lost in the way that the flashbacks paralleled what was going on in the current times and something would happen that would kind of spur a memory that would then be shown in flashback. I was wondering if that was part of your inspiration for that storytelling device. Um, I, I use that a fair bit in my own writing anyway. Um, uh, I like, I think it helps build a character to realize um, the roots of their actions sometimes. Uh, existing in events that happened in the past, but with 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 Into the Void, I wanted to explore, and and actually it was something that the, my editor said to me: it'd be really cool to explore some of the actual Jedi training at the the temples on Tython. So, um, and that served the story really well for me. It meant that um, in the flashback sections, there's Lenori and Dal traveling across Tython, visiting the various Jedi temples, um, being taught by Jedi masters, and what happens on their journey then affects obviously the the sort of main part of the story which is the what's happening now and uh the the sort of conflict that her, uh, she and her brother get into and i i like that, that that way of storytelling and it's it can be quite informative yeah it really did serve as a great way to bring me into this universe that you were drawing at first i wasn't sure opening the book being a totally new era what to expect and when you start off with the flashback of them as children i'm wondering if this is a book about children and the way it was told yeah. it really did draw me into the novel oh good thanks glad. but regarding the jedi training it's kind of the way you portrayed it like a liberal arts education it combines <laughs> you know tribal ritual of adulthood quest rather than what we'd learned and seen in the prequel trilogy and a far mm. more classroom based type of environment what drew you to that kind of portrayal of Jedi training? Um, I was partly dictated by John and Jan's idea of what, what involved the training, what was involved in the training anyway. Um, the fact that there's, there are these Jedi temples all over um, Tython, the, the planet that the Force sensitives have been taken to. Um, and, the, uh, and I think it, it sort of, it goes back to a sort of a primal uh, feel to the story as well. The, the fact that, as you say, it's not classroom based, and they're not they're not sat down with a dozen Jedi masters around them. They have to travel between temples, and the the landscape and the flora and fauna of Tython is dangerous in itself. So, part of their learning and part of their journey isn't just learning about the Force from Jedi masters; is actually confronting um, confronting nature and confronting a nature which on Tython is actually heavily imbued with with the force so tithon itself is a force rich planet so some of the creatures they they meet there and some of the places that they they um they come across are actually inimical to uh, or uh, you know very powerful for for force sensitives and can be negatively powerful as opposed to positively so so the journey was um really interesting part of the story to write um as i say it was uh i mean partly hinted at by John and Jan and, and the discussions we had. And I, I just drew on those ideas and tried to expand them quite a bit. Yeah, it definitely seems like a much more high risk type of training as those who don't graduate may die in some of these quests. It was an yeah. interesting view of teenagehood. <laughs> yeah. And it, it also, I think, um, sort of helps, helps reveal that, you know, the, the time period we're writing about wasn't, wasn't quite as, safe and cozy is um some of the you know the the things we used to in the movies um you know it was a it was a very primal time the planet itself the jedi have only been on there uh, as i'm 
as my novel starts, they've only been there for 10,000 years. So already that although already there's a history to their their existence there it's it's not a very long history and they and i think they also they still sort of feel like um to an extent visitors and that that as well comes through in um dal's aims and intentions in the novel which i don't want to give too much away about so yeah and also included in your novel you draw in some parallels to present day world issues like science versus religion partisan politics vegetarianism and such and with the jedi striving for the balance in both sides of the force i feel your book really does a good job of presenting clearly both sides of the issues that the reader while they may not agree with one side's take can understand the point of view Mm. is it important to you to ask these kinds of questions that tie into the real world morality in your fiction i always i often try to yeah it depends what i'm working on um i mean this and for me, this uh, Star Wars novel is just ripe for for um, confronting issues like that. It's certainly, um, you know, the science science not necessarily versus religion, but science in a, in in a balance with religion. Um, because the Jedi, uh, they're they're sort of a religious order. They don't really know what the Force is. Um, they it's there and they use it and and it it serves them and they serve it. So. But they're also scientists, and you know, there's uh, an interesting interesting part for me was um, as we talked about the the training. So they visit various temples, and there's a science temple, and there's a, a temple of the arts, um, and they and they all work together. And uh, I quite liked I like the fact that they these various disciplines can work together. And I also like exploring how sometimes they may maybe butt against each other. Um, and another interesting, uh, I don't want to say too much about Lenore really and what, what happens to her in the novel, but she sort of focuses in on one particular element of, um, of the force. And, and I think that, that makes a quite an interesting, makes a quite an interesting addition to her character that what she gets up to with, um, uh, yeah, I don't want to say too much. I'm, <laughs> I'm keen to talk about what happens to her, but I don't want to, I don't want to give any spoilers. You know, there's, there are contradictions in, in Lenore that I think, could be fascinating to explore further at some point. And you mentioned that the Jedi are kind of like a religious order, but you draw that out explicitly in the book when she's talking to Trey, and Trey says that she looks like a monk, and she goes, the difference between her and the religious folk is that she knows the Force exists because Mm. she can use it to have basically superpowers. So do you see that as a little bit of a difference there? Because most religions operate purely on faith and promote concepts of faith. And that is what makes one devout is faith without proof. Um, yeah, I guess so. I guess that that's what I was getting at to an extent. I mean, um, I think that, you know, the Jedi are a sort of a religious order in a way, but, uh, but I, I don't know, maybe, you know, because the force exists, does that make it a, make them more of a science order? I'm not sure. That's an interesting interesting question. I mean, I like I like talking about the balance between religion and science in in my own fiction. Like I said, and in in Star Wars, it's just uh, it's a perfect ground to talk about that because you know on Tython there are many types of religions, many religious orders, and many of them are also force sensitives as well. Yeah, that's interesting. And now I do want to ask you some spoilerific questions about the book. So listeners who haven't read it yet, please fast forward a little bit and then come back and listen after you've read it. 
First of all, you talk in the book, this one's really kind of light, about swing dust mining. And I wasn't familiar with swing dust. I was wondering if you could tell us what swing dust mining is. I think that's probably something I made up. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff. I think I was quite aware writing the book that it, it sort of hit me a few times. And the the only time I became a little bit nervous when I was writing was wow, I'm actually making, I'm writing Star Wars lore now. It's going to become, you know, people are going to be talking about this, the swing dust mining on Titan. Oh, wow. And yeah, it's something I made up. I suppose um, in my head, the swing dust was sort of a, a subtle hallucinogenic or something. So, you know, it would be used in the bars and the taverns. <laughs> and then in the opening where you list the characters, you have... Kara listed just as, as a troublemaker. And I was wondering, <laughs> having finished the book, did you intend that to be a humorous understatement? Uh, a little, yeah. I, d I didn't want to give too much away, really. I, I don't usually do character lists at the beginning of my book. This this was something that the uh, the publishers wanted. So, I mean, Dalian Brock I've got as a dreamer. Um, again, <laughs> you know, he is a dreamer, but I, I, it would be too easy to describe him too accurately. So that so that people have preconceptions when they go into the book. So um, I chose some of those words quite carefully. And now this deals with Lenore's healing process at the end of the book with the flesh alchemy experiment. She yeah. has a force vision of what I'm assuming was Darth Vader, as Vader was conceived by the force, and Lenore and Dan Prowl through their experiments are using the force to create life. And she also sees a lightsaber, which, as you mentioned, aren't part of Jedi yet. Are mm. you kind of implying that through their flesh alchemy experiments, the Jedi are changing the Force or the path of the Force? Well, first of all, the vision the vision she has isn't, it's not of Vader. It's of uh, a character in the comics, Zesh the Force Hound. Uh, if anyone who's who's reading the comics will recognize the vision she has at, at that particular time, because the story takes place at the same time as the first arc of the Dawn of the Jedi comics, which is called Force Storm. Um, there's a big storm, Force Storm on the planet. As I say, Tython's very Force rich and there's this massive storm. So at the same time that that's happening towards the end of the book and Lenore sees this vision of this character with a with a lightsaber, uh, lots of other Force sensitives across the across the planet are catching the same vision. And that's a sort of a, a real pivotal, um, pivotal point in the in the comic series. So, uh, so that's what that is. Um, the the alchemy of flesh. I I came up with myself and thought it would be. It feels pretty dark, you know. Her Lenori, as I mentioned earlier, her she seems to become very passionate about the force science and um, the alchemy of flesh is something she that Dan Powell introduces her to and which she takes on board really really well and she's really good at it and a comment from actually john ostrander when i was writing this uh, i think probably the first time he read the novel was that's that could be seen as dark side and that really fascinated me actually the fact that she's she's playing with these powers which could in later you know in in later eras of star wars if she was doing this thirty thousand years hence it would be a dark side power and that that's also interesting because you know the back now in the era i'm writing in you got the balance so people can not dabble in the dark side, but they're they're aware of the dark side in in them as well as they're aware of the light side. So, having her using and using this power to heal herself, I, I found really interesting, and it just sets up more contradictions in her and makes her, you know, there's a little bit of doubt in her sometimes. She's she's not necessarily balanced all the time, and that's that's what makes it interesting. That's what makes her interesting as a character for me. And you kind of 
call that out in the book as well when she's erasing that one character's memory about how, you know, they refer kind of the light side and dark side as the Ashla and the Bogan, coming from Lucas's real early scripts here, a couple of moons, a light moon and a dark moon. And you mention how she feels the Bogan getting strong as she's doing that with the dust erasing parts of his brain and how she strives for the balance. So that was something I also kind of caught was that it seemed like in a later era this would be considered a dark side act it probably would yeah um and i think my my sort of take on the on the in the later era with the light side and the dark side is sometimes the dark side's easier and more powerful and it's it's harder to stay to the light side perhaps so when she was doing that um this is all very spoilerific like you say so when she's doing that to this character she's taking the easy way out in a way she's using a power you know that maybe if she thought about it more or had more time she could she could achieve her end achieve her ends in another way but she was using something that she knew she could do that would work quickly and you know it's it's pretty nasty actually it's pretty grim so yeah that's um yeah that could have been seen as edging towards the the darkness perhaps you know she's for, for me lenore is a, she's an out and out good character she's she strives for good and and she's a jedi ranger and and she's she's a decent person um but she has her problems and her doubts and she's troubled obviously you know what she's been through in her life and what she goes through in this book is bound to trouble anyone so <laughs> yeah and during this journey she's accompanied by a kind of morally gray twi'lek tray yeah and it discusses how Dan Prowl had made agreements with him and done some genetic manipulation and he has three Leku, which is unusual for a Twi'lek. And at the beginning of the book, when this is brought up, I kind of thought he was a genetic experiment and the third Leku was a result of being an artificial creation. But later in the book, I kind of get that that's just how he was and the genetic mutation that had occurred with him was more to block his secrets and such. I was wondering if you could expand upon what your vision was of that character and what had happened to him. Yeah, well, I think the extra... Um, the extra Leku that he's got sort of, um, it's not a deformity as such, it's just a bit of an un- unusual aspect of his heritage. And he's, because of that, he's he's probably been stared at a lot, you know, through his life. And it's made him the person he is, uh, like you say, morally grey. And that's a <laughs> that's an understatement for Trey, I think. Um, but yeah, he's he's been experimented upon or used by Dan Powell, who's a, who's a Jedi master. And she's, she's one of the masters that taught Lenori when she was younger. Um, indeed taught Laurie the, the alchemy of flesh that, that she takes on and, and starts using and becomes very proficient at herself. So, yeah. So Trey, um, first of all, I, I wanted Lenori to have a, a companion for a large portion of the book. It would have been difficult just writing her doing all these, you know, these journeys and these, these feats on her own. So, and also useful, her having a companion like Trey, who in a way is giving her information that the Jedi Council hadn't given her, because Dan Powell's um, in on in on more than more than is first appeared. So um, yeah, he was a he was a fun character to write. And although morally grey, I like to think he sort of redeems himself quite a bit. And my last really big spoiler question kind of goes to the motivations of Dahl. We see him as he grows up and he is kind of ostracized, similar to how you kind of portray Trey in that he's always kind of viewed as something unusual in that he's surrounded by the Jedi and keeps himself in the Force willingly. But by the time we encounter him in 
the latter part of the book as an adult again, when Lenore catches up to him, he seems so sure of his own convictions that he's willing to order the execution of his sister and try to have her killed multiple times, whereas Lenore being the good character is, of course, conflicted about having to possibly kill her own brother if that's what the mission leads her towards. I was wondering, at what point did you see Dow making a turn to where fratricide would be completely acceptable along the way to his means, whereas when we see him as a kid and when he leaves, he's certainly petulant and yeah. haughty, but I didn't see him as necessarily homicidal. No. Um, I think Dal, by the time you meet him as an adult, by the time Lenore first catches up with him, he's it, it's evident that he's become a fanatic, and he's perhaps been driven a little bit mad by that fanaticism. What he's trying to do is... Um, you know, he's always looked to the stars. He's always been aware, as everyone on Tython is aware, that their history lies out in the stars. It doesn't lie in the Tython system. Um, for anyone who hasn't read the comics, the four sensitives on Tython who've been there for 10,000 years, everyone in the Tython system, in fact, were brought to the system by giant spaceships, as such, called Thoyor, uh, 10,000 years before, and basically deposited on, on Tython, which, was, which is this very force-rich planet. Um, presumably, so so they all think to learn about the force. So that's what they've been doing. The people who weren't force sensitive then sort of migrated out into the system and started in inhabiting the other planets there. So although everyone's aware, all you know, Lenore is as aware of uh, as Dal that that their history lies, their deep history lies way out in the stars. She's content to stay in the Titan system and learn from the force, but he wants to get, he wants to find out, you know, the fundamental fundamentals of their history he wants to get back out to the stars and i suppose the fact that he's ostracized not necessarily ostracized perhaps you know he sort of brings it on himself in, in a in a little way he's he's seen as he thinks he's seen as a freak because he's not a force sensitive but he's not really his family love him it's just one of those things and they're they're hoping his parents hope oh he'll come around to it he'll he'll find the force at some point but he doesn't and he actually rebels against that and make makes sure if there are any glimmers of force sensitivity within him, he makes sure he gets rid of them because he, he really doesn't want to be a slave to the force. So he's out there for these intervening years. And I, you know, I don't know what happened to him in those years. And, and we don't know. Lenore doesn't really find out. But he's been, he's turned into a fanatic and he'll do anything to achieve his aims. And he, he sort of grows to hate his sister, I think, as well, really. She never really grows to hate him. And she, I suppose she feels sorry for him, but he's... Maybe maybe it's a deep-rooted jealousy, but he sort of hates what she's become. So the idea that he'd attempt to kill her, I don't think is a is a stretch at all. So yeah, that was pretty challenging to write actually, because it's, it's a bit unpleasant. She was doing her best for him, and in a way, you know, to start off with, he was he was going with it, but it all it all went wrong for Dal. I want to just compliment you because ever since Luke and Leia were revealed to be siblings, we've seen stories of siblings throughout the Star Wars fiction. Family is such a integral concept to the Star Wars lore, but what I don't think I'd ever seen is that somebody reject the Force and use that and still be the villain because and be such a competent villain because the Jedi are seen as so powerful. Mm. We've seen before... Jedi against Jedi, sibling against sibling, but seeing one who rejected the Force and tried to use the more earthly means and to kill the Jedi sister, I thought was really well done and one yeah. of the great hooks of the novel. Yeah, thank you. It's, for me, it was um, the Force 
like when I'm, for instance, when I'm writing a fantasy novel and I'm trying to come up with a sort of a, a magic system, which in effect is what the force is in a large way. Um, you can't make it too powerful because then there's no conflict. If if someone becomes so powerful that nobody can beat them, then where's the conflict? So, so for me, it was interesting having Lenori, who's who's his very competent um, Jedi Ranger, going against her brother who doesn't, you know, who who isn't force sensitive, and finding it hard and fighting him and finding that hard. That was that was really good fun and quite important to make the novel work. I think considering what it's all about. Also, I thought you did a good job of telling the story in such a way where I could at many times empathize with Dao's point of view. Lenore seems so powerful and kind of like a teacher's pet in many ways. And it's like the world is against Dao. Everyone from their parents, when they go off, everyone's like, Dao's going to be a failure in this. And so Mm -hmm. it seems like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I think it is in a way that that's, that's the way he feels, I think that everyone's against him and it's, it's not necessarily the case but but it, it could be that you know maybe what i was trying to get at in in a way is that if you know the the lenorian parents they're so certain in the force and they're so comfortable with it that when dal doesn't display elements of of having the force or wanting to go with it then they they're sort of confused and it's not they don't ostracize him, but they're, they're just sort of, well, what, you know, what's wrong with him? Why doesn't he open himself up and come with us? So it was brought upon him largely, I suppose, but, uh, I still find him probably, uh, you know, he's a fascinating character in the book. Him and Lenore just bounce off each other perfectly, I think. And I love the scenes where they, where they're with each other talking and, and, uh, you know, the later scenes as well as the earlier scenes when they're kids. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the way the book ends, you leave several, open strands which could be picked up either in the comics or possibly in a follow-up novel i was wondering yeah. if you'd had any conversations about writing a follow-up novel to this yet um no there's nothing nothing firm yet i i would love to to be honest i'd love to uh i'd love to see lenori in a trilogy based around around the the dawn of the jedi era but um there's nothing nothing firm yet it's been it's been mentioned briefly but there's nothing um nothing on the cards yet uh, I can't get the the quote quite right, but clouded the future is, Yoda would say. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> and the only other story featuring Lenore is a prequel short story to this that appeared in a Star Wars Insider written by John Ostrander. That's right, yeah. And I was wondering what if you had any communication with him regarding your vision of the character and what was going to take place in this earlier story. Um, yeah, I mean, John John had obviously read my novel by then anyway. A couple of times he'd, he'd gone through and commented on it. So he knew Lenore pretty well. He wanted to write a story with Lenore featuring one of his characters from, from the comics. So it was a perfect sort of meeting place for the two, really. Well, great. Well, Tim, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about this. Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void goes on sale tomorrow, listeners. So be sure to head to Amazon or your local bookstore and pick that up. And... We hope we get to talk to you again when you do future Star Wars works. Well, let's hope so. Thanks for having me, Arnie. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much to Tim and for our friends at Delray for setting up that interview. Great to talk to him. A lot of British accents this week on the show. Head to your local bookstore to pick up that book tomorrow, and Brock will be joining us in a couple of weeks with a full review of it. Now, finally this week, this past weekend at Disney in California, Mike Kungel had an art show. Our podcast enhancer and reporter Barrett was there to cover it and talk to Mike about his work. 
Hey everybody, this is uh, Barrett, Master Collect Em All, your Swan Holocron Enhancer reporter, and I'm here with Mike Kungle. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very nice, thank you. And we're here at Downtown Disney on May the 4th, be with you. Yes, we are. Hello, everyone. And Mr. Kungle is actually debuting some of his new Acme Archives work. Uh, we have a brand new job of the hut. We have Vader's Speed Shop and uh, 3PO's Droid Station. Now, to get you a little background of Mr. Kungle, Mr. Kungle has been working in the corporate advertising business for many, many years. He worked for Panasonic, Johnson & Johnson. How does your experience working with the corporate advertising sector translate into creating art for Acme Archives and Disney? That's a good question. Uh, what first comes to mind is you bring a certain amount of professionalism to the fine art industry. Uh, with that kind of background, I treat it as a business, so it's not just some, you know, flaky artist, uh, you know, sitting at home painting. This is a business for me, and I bring that business sense to my clients, the characters, and the publishers. So easy to, to work with someone when they got their when they when they got it together. Yes, and I can see that you brought your advertising experience yeah. into a lot of the artwork here because a lot of you know, we have Vader, the Empire, we have the Stormtrooper, uh, Jabba the Hutt. They're all basically advertising uh, Art Deco type of style, which is your signature style. Can you tell us a little bit about the process you're going into picking some of the characters that you want to do? Yeah, everything I do is based on the, from the Art Deco advertising era, which is 1920 to 1945. And all the characters, whether it be Star Wars, Disney, Looney Tunes, Marvel, they all have an attraction. And it's just a matter of getting to them all. I will eventually paint them all, but the, the ones that are the most prominent, like Darth Vader, the Stormtrooper, Princess Leia, those are the, the classic key characters. You gravitate towards those, and everyone else does too. So you've got to go with what's popular as well. Right, those are very iconic. <laughs> and the one that really catches my eye is the, well, actually two, is the C-3PO with yep. all the golds and yellows. Yep. And he is the server, you know, he will mm -hmm. is to serve you, so you have yeah. him as like a butler yep. type of thing. And he's not something that would come to mind when you would traditionally think of some sort of advertising. You know, Vader and right. the Stormtrooper, Leah, yeah. like you mentioned, that's something that's kind of like a no-brainer. So how, why did you pick C-3PO? I'll tell you exactly why. He, uh, in this particular image, he is like a vintage waiter, butler, and he's serving... He's got a towel over his hand. He's actually serving you uh, oil and gear and lube and all that stuff. And it's meant to be a play off of uh, the old uh, advertising and restaurant posters for cafes in France. It, yep. it was a perfect, perfect image for that. It's absolutely perfect. And I like how you <laughs> took the gears and it kind of looks like maybe an egg. <laughs> and, yeah, and like a coffee <laughs> and stuff for the cog. Uh -huh. And, you know, the other one that really stands out is Jabba. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jabba... Uh, is always my favorite character from Return of the Jedi. Mm. I mean, he's just in charge, uh -huh. very scary when I was yeah. a kid. Uh -huh. You know, that is an unusual pick. So tell me a little bit why you picked Jabba. The reason I picked Jabba is because nobody's done him. And I had this killer idea to where I could take Jabba and make it like he's advertising for his own club, Jabba's Hut Club in Cantina. I just thought it was perfect. And of course, if you're going to have Jabba the Hut, you're going to have uh, Princess Leia in her classic slave girl outfit. And it, it worked out perfect. So I, I, that's a, that, that one's brand new today, and I'm extremely pleased to debut that here. And, and you would think that Jabba wouldn't have to advertise because 
he owns all the routes in the outer <laughs> exactly. outer rim. So, yeah. you know, for him to sell a few drinks and stuff is, would be <laughs> right. kind of small. Yeah. But, uh, no, it, it, it's, it's absolutely great. You know, I wanted to ask you, is there a character that you wanted to do uh, that was rejected by either Lucas or Disney? Uh, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just submitted a Darth Vader piece, which was just a little too domineering. And uh, I, I crossed a sensitivity issue with the uh, Lucasfilms on it, so we get, didn't get to produce it. It looked too much like a Nazi propaganda poster, where Darth Vader is, you know, he's the, the most evil lord of them all. And I, I think I pushed the envelope on it too far. And you know what? Mission accomplished, because that's what I wanted to do, but now it's not going to get published. Uh, and also, uh, some of the Disney characters, I've, I've drawn them sometimes a little bit too provocatively, and they get sent back. Right, yes, I could definitely agree with that. But, you know, looking at this Vader, it does have the victory is eminent empire rule, uh -huh. and it does have the lightning bolts, uh -huh. you know, that's there. So yeah. you have a little bit of, I, I look like you wanted to keep in, but, uh, you know, you do have to make the bosses happy. Absolutely, you have to make the bosses happy. And the other thing is, is these are still lighthearted. The other one that got rejected was very heavy, over overbearing, overlording, communistic almost. Right. Uh, it's pretty. It was a very cool image, uh, and I think it would have scared a lot of people. Now, when you were in the process, <laughs> <laughs> now when you were in the process of designing these, uh, this art. Was it still getting permission from Lucasfilm, or was Disney actually getting into the process of okaying things? Because you know uh, Disney has bought Lucasfilm last year. Everything goes through Lucasfilm. Disney has uh, very little say in what we produce for Lucas Arts. So, uh, what can we expect from you in the future concerning any type of Star Wars work? Well, I'll be in Florida in two weeks uh, for the Star Wars celebration. I've just released my new job of the Hut piece, and I'm currently working on two more secret Star Wars projects that will be coming out hopefully by Comic Con, and also working on some uh, Chuck Jones, Looney Tunes, Disney, and some uh, more superheroes also to be released by Comic Con. So I've got the next uh, couple months pretty worked up for myself so that I can make all the listeners and collectors happy. Secret Star Wars are do did any Bothans die for, to bring us that information? Nothing nothing died. It's all it's all good. <laughs> and are you going to be at Comic-Con? You going to have a booth at Comic-Con? Uh, I'm represented by Acme Archives and I will be at the Chuck Jones Gallery in the Lamp in the, the Lamp District uh, for a show on Saturday night of uh, of that weekend. You know, I'm going to be, we cover Comic-Con every year, yes. and uh, maybe I can uh, get an interview with you there and so you, when you debut your new work. Yes, you may, and I'll be happy to do that for you. That'd be great. Do you have a website that the listeners can go to where they can see uh, what you got for uh, going right now? They can go to Acme Archives uh, website to see the Star Wars collection, and then if they want to see some of my other work, they can go to mkungle.com. Google Mike Kungl and everything will come up that I'm working on. And that's Kungl. It's K-U-N-G-L. It's like jungle with a K. And no E. Jungle with a K and no E. You got it. <laughs> so we're going to have a nice little contest. And what we did was uh, you're going to sign this Rebel Alliance Defend and Protect uh, print that you have for us. And one of our lucky listeners is going to win this uh, piece of artwork for you. What do you think about that? That's pretty cool. And you know what? This is also the piece that's featured on the hit show, uh, Big Bang Theory. Oh, yeah, it is. So the listeners get a really uh, cool piece of art from you. Yeah, so for all you nerd alerts out there, this is the piece to have. I think we're called geeks now. Okay, is that what it is? <laughs> yeah, I think we're called geeks that now. That just goes to show you what kind of a nerd I am. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you very much for your time, Mr. Kungle. I really appreciate it, and I'll look forward to talking to you during uh, Comic-Con. Thank you, Barrett. I'll look forward to it. Thank you, Barrett. And he does have a piece from Mike Kungle that we are giving away. We're doing it a little differently this time. We're not doing it through the forums. You have to follow Star Wars Action News on Twitter and retweet our contest announcements. And we're going to do that this week only. So you're only going to have through the 11th to enter. And we're going to announce the winner on our Monday the 13th show. Well, that's our show for this week. We'll be back next week. And we'll talk to you then. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Action News. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We want your feedback and suggestions for Star Wars Action News. You can email us at show at swactionnews.com or post your thoughts in the Star Wars Action News forums at swactionnews.com, the most friendly forums on the web. You can also find Star Wars Action News on Facebook and Twitter. The links to our social media sites are at swactionnews.com. You can be on Star Wars Action News by calling our voicemail at 415-508-JEDI or sending an MP3 or iPhone voice memo to show at swactionnews.com. All materials submitted become the property of Star Wars Action News and are subject to use on our show. You can find even more Star Wars coverage at our sister podcast, Republic Forces Radio Network, where we review each episode of the Clone Wars cartoon series. You can find that podcast at republicforces.com. If you're into Star Wars novels, check out the Star Wars Action News Book Club, where we read and review all the Star Wars novels. That podcast is at swactionnews.com. For more Star Wars collecting, please check out GalacticHunter.com, JediDefender.com, JediTempleArchives.com, and YakFace.com. And we thank those sites for their support of Star Wars Action News. You can help support Star Wars Action News by making a donation using the Donate button at SWActionNews.com or by using affiliate links on the Star Wars Action News homepage when shopping online. Your support helps keep Star Wars Action News on the air. We also appreciate it if you would spread the word about Star Wars Action News. If you enjoyed the show, please post about Star Wars Action News on Facebook, Twitter, or your social media network of choice, or just tell a friend about the show. We would also greatly appreciate a five-star review written on iTunes. A link to our iTunes page is at SWActionNews.com. Star Wars Action News is created, produced, edited, and hosted by Marjorie and Arnie. The Star Wars Action News team is segment reporters Jerry, Brock, Jonathan, Nathan, and Steve, graphic design by Chris, image editing by Jay, podcast enhancement by Andrew and Barrett, associate produced and podcast announcements by Brock. Star Wars Action News is not affiliated with Lucasfilm Limited. The show is created by Star Wars fans showing their love of Star Wars. Star Wars and all that the Star Wars universe contains is trademark and copyright Lucasfilm Limited, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company, all rights reserved. Until next time, may the pegs be stocked and the Force be with you. Star Wars Action News is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. 
and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Star Wars Action News. Now this is podcasting. Podcasting.